I got a video here. It's a little shaky uh, because of the fact that it was filmed. I was in knee-deep water uh, hand-holding this video. So, but I want to share with you, it's one of our instructors, uh, one of our instructors for spoken word ministries in Africa. Hello, my name is Yama Godfrey. Uh, we are from a program in a refugee camp, Budi. Uh, I'm also one of the instructors of OBS, and we are together with the pastor, Dave, and now we are, the, the, we are in the other side of the river, planning to cross to the, the other side of Germany. Like as I'm a refugee, and this one is now almost about my third time to be in a refugee camp. We went to Uganda the first the first time when I was a refugee is 1989. We based in a camp called Oliji Refugees Camp, Stroke of Gujabe. That is the first refugees camp I have been. And also we go back and stay for a short moment. After two to three years, we also come back to a refugees camp. And we now base in Palorinia Refugees Camp. And this time also we are a refugees. Now I have stayed in a refugees camp for four years. And all together during the time when we go back, we return. We stay for 20 years. And it is about now 24 years I was being a refugee in Uganda. Uh, we receive this STS training. We start on 2017. That is the time when we, re- when we came to the refugees camp and we received the, the program of STS. And I like STS very much because it changed my life. The time when I came to the camp, we have an enmity between uh, the other tribes, like the Dingas. And when I attend this program, they teach us about forgiveness. And that thing, it changed my life because I have a better heart with these people. When I show them on the road, for me, I cannot greet them. But this time, STS changed my life. It made me to forgive. As a pastor, this oral Bible have really done something great. Like in our refugees come in Palorinia, we have about five, five oral Bible school, one in Ibudi, one in Ipasu, the third one is in Morobi, and then the other one is in Dama East, and the other one is in Dama West. And really, it has changed our community because this, the time when we came here, we cannot, we, we cannot our community can, they are against other tribes, but this time, when the oral Bible school was introduced, people started to forgive each other. They started to share everything together with the other tribes that they are thinking that it is their enemy, but they are now friends in one place. Thank you. And what tribe are you? The tribe? Yeah, what tribe? Uh, like uh, our tribe here, people who are in this side, we are Kuku. That's our body speakers. And in then, the tribe that the Kuku hate very much is, is the Nuer. And the, Dinga, and the Dinga tribes. But this time, they are now working hand-to-hand, also in doing other workshops concerning about the Oral Bible School. They're all sharing things together. So, uh, Pastor Godfrey Yama, and, uh, you know, I'm not, hopefully you could understand that. Uh, I've gotten used to kind of hearing the accents, and, and it sounds normal to me. But uh, certainly his English is better than my body. Uh, body is the language that they speak. But uh, uh, Pastor Godfrey, Gama, Godfrey Yama, he oversees five of the oral Bible schools in his area. And one of the things that he was sharing that I thought was just so beautiful was he's part of the Cuckoo tribe. Uh, and uh, the Cuckoo, uh, they are not, uh, they have no love loss for the Dinkas or the Nuer. 
the Dinkas and the Nuer are the ones who have kind of started the Civil War. And as a man who has spent 24 years of his life in a refugee settlements back and forth, uh, when war broke out between the Dinka and the Nuer, they, uh, they just, the, the, the tribes themselves have problems with the other tribes. Well, one of the things he was sharing is that uh, since they learned the oral Bible schools, now they've brought, it's brought them together. They forgive. Uh, they know the word. They share all things in common. They're happy to serve one another. And really beautiful testimony. And I'll be showing you more and more testimonies from uh, my last trip here as we go. But uh, wonderful things happening through that oral Bible school. If you haven't had a chance to join the Simply the Story Sunday school class, it's for adults, anybody. Uh, that happens Sunday mornings during the first service. Uh, Naomi and Alan are teaching how to teach uh, oral inductive Bible study. And it's a, a wonderful course. And that'll prep you to go work with them in, the, in all over, let's see, we're now in South Sudan, North Sudan, uh, Uganda, Kenya. So we'd love for it to send some people, more people from uh, Calvary Chapel, Old Town. All right. With that said, let's get into the word. Tonight, let's pray, and we'll uh, start out in 2 Samuel chapter 20. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. We thank you for the wonderful worship that Augie and Golda led, and just the whole worship team. Uh, it was so wonderful to join in with them and sing your praises and lift up your name. So now, Lord, we pray as we open up your word that you might teach us and give us understanding. God, transform us. And we thank you so much, Lord, for the, as we've been studying the life of your servant, David, that God, uh, we might also learn from him and that you might make us a lamp to our communities and a light uh, that would reflect uh, your wonderful salvation and gospel of grace. So we thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 20, continuing on in the life of David. Now, we left off last week with King David just coming back into Israel. Uh, Absalom, his son, had tried to uh, overthrow him, and he had chased, Absalom had actually chased David out of, of Ju Jerusalem and uh, put him on the run. Well, Joab and the army took care of Absalom. And then uh, Joab kind of got David out of his grief, and finally they returned to Jerusalem. But we left off in the chapter with Israel a little bit upset, uh, the other tribes of Israel. So we have Judah. So from now on, we might mention Judah and Israel. So Judah, the one tribe of Israel versus all the other tribes of Israel. Uh, we're going to see eventually David's grandson, the kingdom completely splits with him, and you have uh, Judah by itself, and then the other uh, northern Israel. So that's kind of where we're at today. Israel was a little upset about David uh, coming back and not being fair with them, and that's where we're picking up this, uh, this evening. So chapter 20, verse 1, And there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite, and he blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. Well, this man, Sheba, uh, in the New King James, it says rebel. Some of your modern translations might say worthless man. 
That's actually a, a very accurate translation to say a worthless man. And, um, and you can say either one. And honestly, uh, a rebel against the king that God has established is also a worthless man. So it, it works out just fine. Uh, whenever you go against God, you're going to be a worthless man. I'll tell you, I'll tell you right now. But, uh, but Sheba decides that he's going to run a rebellion. And he comes up with a few reasons here for his rebellion. So he blows a trumpet. That's the whole sign of war. And he says three things. First, we have no share in David. So basically what this is saying is that David has no right to the, his sovereignty, to being king over, over Israel. So Israel has no share with David. David's for Judah. We're our own people. David has no right, and he's questioning the right of David to be a sovereign king. Second thing he says, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. And that idea there is that uh, Saul was the king. God made Saul king, and Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. David, on the other hand, was no regal man. He had no inheritance with the king, Saul, but rather David was the son of this poor farmer, Jesse. And so therefore, there's no reason to follow David either because he's just the son of Jesse. It was just a way to speak poorly about King David. And lastly, he calls every man to his tents, O Israel. That's the battle cry. Every man to his tents. We're going we're to go take care of this. And, uh, and so every man left. Now, one thing I want to say about this is be careful when people bring up catchy slogans because the fact is, is you need to understand the substance of what's being said and not just believe everything that, that is, uh, comes along with a catchy slogan. And I think, sorry, I, I forgot to pull up my notes here. I opened up my iPad, but no notes. There we go. Uh, it, you know, there's so many catchy slogans going out there, and, and we've seen a lot this past year. And you yourself need to be a judge and use wisdom in discerning whether this is something true or not true. Let me give you an example of this. Black Lives Matter. That's been a popular slogan. The slogan, the banner, the flag has been flowing everywhere. And yes, black lives do matter. Lives matter, period. All lives matter. Uh, but if you were to say all lives matter or distinguish something like that, you were considered uh, wrong or evil in some way. In fact, I saw one pastor holding up a sign, one popular pastor, that said, no lives matter until black lives matter. And I would challenge you on that. Ah, that sounds like a catchy slogan, but let's think about that for a moment. Is it true? Is it true? Is that the rally cry we should be jumping to? No lives matter until black lives matter? And which black lives matter, or which black lives are we talking about? What is the abuse level? We should be asking ourselves these question, questions before just jumping onto some slogan to overturn uh, police cars, burn cities, do all these sorts of things. Now, certainly, if there's some sort of injustice going on in a city, it does call for us to stand up, to, to make our voices known, to call for reform if needed, to call for justice if, if necessary. But, but these slogans that have been going around have caused people just to buy into because it's popular, it's catchy, everybody else is doing it. But the question is, is it true? And so Sheba here, as he gets this rebellion going, and he, he actually draws with him most of Israel, it appears, 
But there were some who straight stayed true to Judah, to uh, David. That's all that, but the men of Judah from the Jordan, as far as Jerusalem, remained loyal to their king. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. You're faster than me, Katie. Good job. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul writes this, uh, this good command and an exhortation to us, the Christian, and how we conduct ourselves in this world. Now, Paul has become a prisoner. And what he says first is to walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. What calling were we called to? Well, we were called to eternal life in Christ Jesus. We were called into the kingdom of God. And now as citizens of the kingdom of God, we're to walk worthy of that. Well, what does that mean? That means to, to represent the kingdom of God in a right fashion and right manner. So what does that look like? Well, Paul says, with all lowliness and gentleness... So there's a humility and a gentleness with those who are part of the kingdom of God. We're not overreacting uh, in every situation when we interact with other people, even when we disagree with them. Our goal is to represent Christ and not ourselves. With long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Well, that's a, that's a high command for us, right? To, to have long-suffering endurance. Uh, have you ever tested your long-suffering with those you don't agree with? I mean, just for a moment, just think about how well do you do. Think back to the last few people you've interacted with that you have disagreed with, and how do you show love and long-suffering in such situations? Just, just a challenge for you to think about. Bearing with one another in love. You know, you know what the word bearing means? The word bearing is not something that you want to do. It's something that, that you do because you're you're, you need to do it. It's something that you, you endure. Whenever the, the, the scriptures talk about bearing with, it's not the fun thing. It's not the thing we want to be a part of. It's not the easy thing. It's the thing that we have to really consider, make a decision, and practice. Uh, I, I'll never forget practices in high school uh, with water polo. We, I, we got to the point where we were afraid to ask if practice was almost over. Because if we asked, then there was so much more. And we already had hit our I can't. But our coach was determined to teach us to endure. And then, and endurance basically is just one of those things is, well, I want to play water polo. I want to play in the game. So I'm going to bear with the practice. I'm going to do it. I'll never forget we had team, uh, some of the varsity team come down when, we were, when I was a sophomore in high school playing with our coach. And our coach, I think, might have been a masochist. It's it, very, very possible that's also what he was. But some of the varsity team came and joined our practice, and they got so angry, they would walk off because they missed their practice, and the, co- the varsity coach would make them come practice with us. And basically what it was was they didn't have the endurance to bear with. So they would walk off. Well, then they would end up at two more of our practices, crying and complaining the whole time. Meanwhile, us freshmen and sophomores were just like, this is normal. This is the, the, uh, the, what we get in our life. I'll never forget when uh, 
the, I finally, the, the end of my sophomore year, I got moved up to varsity during CIF. And uh, I was like, sweet, I'm finally done with Coach Dave. That was his name. And, uh, well, then uh, Coach Grafton moved to another school. And Coach Dave became the varsity coach. And I was like, oh. But, but he was good at what he did, torturing kids. So, but bearing with people is not something that's easy. It's something that makes you want to throw up your hands and walk away. And, and that's, that's the call of those who are kingdom-minded uh, kingdom and are part of the kingdom of Christ, to be long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. The, the other thing about bearing with people in love is that, that you're humble with them. You don't expect them to know everything. You meet them where they're at. Consider Jesus for just a moment. Have you ever thought about how Jesus interacted with people? Not those who, who came to specifically cause trouble and antagonize Jesus, but, but just like that woman at the well who met him, how Jesus spoke with her. He, he, he didn't demean her. He didn't say, oh, simple Samaritan. You know, no, Jesus, uh, Jesus kind of engaged her in this conversation, and as she would say, well, how are you going to get water? The, the well's deep, and you have nothing to draw the water with. And he said, oh, if you knew the water that I have, you would have asked me for water for a drink, and I would have given you living water. And then he just starts unwrapping this truth to this woman. Uh, and it's quite amazing how Jesus meets us where we're at, but he doesn't leave us there. He takes us with him. And so be long-suffering. Another part of the being called to the kingdom and faithful to the kingdom is endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So quite a different from, difference from what's happening in Israel in 2 Samuel where Sheba has blown a trumpet, given a wise slogan, to, a, a fancy slogan to all of Israel, and they all just deserted. Yet Judah remained loyal to their king. They recognized the kingdom they were a part of. They recognized their king, and they were faithful and uh, submitted to their king David. Meanwhile, the rest of Israel had left. Well, me personally, I want to be faithful to my king Jesus. Verse 3, now David came to the house at Jerusalem, and the king took, took the ten women, his concubines, who had left to keep the house and put them in seclusion and supported them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. So Absalom had taken these 10 concubines and raped them on the rooftop when he tried to take the, the kingdom away from David. It was a way of showing that the king's wives are now mine, the king's concubines are now mine. Well, David couldn't uh, divorce them. He couldn't remarry or marry them off to others uh, because that would obviously create a power issue. And he certainly couldn't be with them anymore. So he, he kind of uh, put them off in seclusion and supported them up until the day they died. This is a sad situation. And I think it's another just commentary on how our sin affects other people. Verse 4, and the king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah for me with, uh, within three days. So Amasa, if you remember, was actually the general under Absalom. And David basically made him, in an effort to try to keep this unity and peace between Israel and Judah, he raised up Amasa and said, okay, Amasa, you're taking over the armies of Israel, and uh, Joab's going to take second place to you. Joab wasn't too stoked on that, and we're, we're going to see in just a moment. 
So uh, he said, uh, uh, raise them up within three days and be present here for yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he had delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. So Joab's men with the Cherethites, uh, the Pelethites, and all the mighty men went out after him, and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were the large, sorry, when they were at the large stone which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was on on it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips, and as he was going. For, forward, it fell out. Now, I'm going to pause there for a moment. So, Amasa is told to assemble the men. Now, if you remember, Absalom made a fatal error because he took bad advice from one of David's spies and he didn't pursue David and attack David immediately. Absalom was a vain man, he had no battlefield experience, and he, he, uh, just took this plan of Hushai, and he, uh, he lost the whole battle as a result. David's not making that same mistake. David is a man of war. David understands this, and David says, hey, we can't let Sheba get away. Amasa, form the armies right away. Get out there. Well, Amasa's not at all up to the task. He doesn't do it. He doesn't get it done. He, he's, he's a very poor general. So David actually asked Abishai, his personal guard, the leader of his personal guard, to, to get the army going and get after uh, Sheba. So on the way, Joab here is dressed out in armor. He's got the sword around his hip, and it, it, he lets it kind of fall out. Then Joab, verse 9, said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard. Now that's, that's like a, a, a weird way, a sign of greeting one another to take it by the beard. You know, I don't know. I don't know what that would look like, but... We can try it sometime, you know. Those of us with beards, just grab hold of each other's beards, you know. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's going to go about as well as greeting each other with a holy kiss, right, guys? Okay, so, <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, he, Joab takes his right hand uh, to kiss Amasa, but Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again, thus he died. So Joab is, um, he is a dangerous man. We've seen this over and over from Joab, how dangerous he is. And then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. When he was removed from the highway, all the people went after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. It was basically a speed bump for everybody. Joab murders Amasa, leaves him there dying in the road, uh, <laughs> his man says, let's follow Joab if you follow David. And here's Amasa just dying, wallowing in his blood. And, and everybody's kind of like shocked at the sight. And so they oh, just toss him into the woods there, throw a blanket over him. Now, all right, let's go, guys. And they all went. It's pretty gory. 
I'll tell you this about Joab, though. Joab was furiously loyal to David. That was the one good trait about Joab. He was, uh, he was a man of war who was very loyal to King David, although he, uh, he also is very deceitful in, in the way he deals with people. Verse 14, and he went through all the tribes of Israel, this is Joab, to Abel and Beth Makkah and all the Barites. So they were gathered together, came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah, and they cast up a siege mound against the city. And it stood by the rampart, and all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman cried out from the city, Here, here, please say to Joab, come nearby, that I may speak with you. When he had come near to her, the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I am listening. So she spoke, saying, They used to talk in former times, saying they shall surely seek guidance at Abel. And so they would, in disputes, I am among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered her and said, Far be it for me, uh, far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not so. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri, by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So Joab here had gone through Israel, and he actually found some people loyal to Israel. And then when they get to the city, they start sieging the city. And the people in the city are like, wait, I don't want this. Why are you going to kill us and my kids? And this isn't cool. So she, she speaks to Joab and says, and Joab says, look, if you throw out Sheba, then we're good. We won't destroy the inheritance of the Lord. I have no intention of doing that. So the woman said to Joab, watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. That's a new kind of volleyball game. So the woman, uh, then the woman in her, in her wisdom went to all the people. They cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to, to, Sheba, uh, to Joab. Then he blew the trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his, own, his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. And Joab was over all the army of Israel. He got his, his position back. Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Adoram was in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat was the son of Ahilud, uh, Ahilud was a recorder. Shiva was the scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira and the, uh, the Jarite was a chief minister under David. Now, um, chief minister might be actually like a personal um, uh, shepherd, uh, pastor sort of uh, thing. And we're not really sure what that is. I, I did some research on it, couldn't find much. A lot of people think that David had a, a spiritual guidance uh, with him, and that's what uh, Ira represented. Not sure, but these are people of David's cabinet. All right, verse 21. Now there was a famine in the days, or chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the, day for, the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you and what shall I make 
atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord. I'm going to pause there. So the Gibeonites, uh, they go, show up in Joshua chapter 9. The Gibeonites, and you can turn over to Joshua 9 for a moment because I'm going to reference a couple passages there. Joshua chapter 9. When the people of Israel were coming into the land, God had told Moses that they are not to make a covenant with any of the peoples of the lands, that God was going to absolutely remove the peoples of the lands and give the land as an inheritance to Israel. Well, the Gibeonites realized this group of Israelites was coming. They had heard about them. They knew that they were coming in, that they were powerful. They had heard about their God. So they were really smart. The Gibeonites basically decided, hey, maybe we can get Israel to make a treaty with us. But if they know that we're part of the land, then they won't do that. So if you go down to verse 9, it says, uh, I'm sorry, verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua, what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. They took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provisions was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him, and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. So they basically get everything old and tattered and looking old. And they, they, get, they even get bread that was their provisions. It was already moldy bread. And so they come to, to uh, Joshua and they well, let's make a treaty here. But we're from far away. And, and of course, they question, well, uh, who are you and where do you come from? And look at verse 9. So they said to him, from very far country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of uh, Hezbon, and Og, king of Bashan. Og was that giant guy who was Ashtaroth. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, Take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them. And, and say to them, we are your servants now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Verse 12, here's the proof. This bread of ours we took hot for our provisions from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins which are filled were new and see they are now torn. <laughs> and these are, these are garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. So look at verse 14. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And so that's the key right there. Joshua did not uh, take counsel from the Lord. He did not ask the Lord, hey, should we make a covenant with these people? He, he did what he saw, what he thought in his own eyes was something good. You, you guys ever get put in a situation where something seems good, seems good to you, and, and you make th- that decision right off just, oh, yeah, that seems good. It seems like a, a fine thing to take part in or a good thing to do, but you've never actually taken counsel from the Lord. You never have actually gotten into God's word and say, Lord, do you want me to participate in this or be a part of it? 
And, and uh, this is one of the problems because once they make this covenant, God expects them to keep it. Look at verse 24 of jo- Joshua 9. So they answered Joshua and said, because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to, to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands to do with it as you seem good and write to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. So when Joshua finds out what happened, that they, they had duped him, he said, okay, you guys are the wood getters and the water carriers for the altar of the Lord. You're going to be Israel's servants for the rest of your days. And they're like, hey, better to serve Israel than to die. Uh, like we'd rather, we'd rather do that than be wiped out. Well, now fast forward to 2 Samuel. What's going on in 2 Samuel? Well, we don't know when Saul did this. But at some time, it's not recorded in 1 Samuel, but at some time Saul went in there and the word here used in 2 Samuel 21 was his bloodthirsty house. At some point, Saul had come in there and started warring with the Gibeonites and just slaughtering them. And, uh, and he had broken this covenant. Now, the point is, is when God is a covenant keeper and when man makes a covenant, he expects him to keep it. In fact, in Revelation, it says that, that there's an emerald rainbow around the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4 that is the covenant, a reminder of the covenant that he has made with us. And, and so although that they've made this false covenant, this bad covenant, God is expecting them to uphold it with the Gibeonites uh, and because they represent their God's people. They represent him. And so when Saul went into slaughter, finally David, God decides, okay, I'm going to re- start repaying Israel for this sin. Now, it was, there wasn't a famine from that time of Saul's slaughter. We just read about it now, chapter 21 of 2 Samuel. All of a sudden, there's no rain. Three years, year after year, there's no, some famine. David knows something's up. What's going on? And, and uh, when he inquires of the Lord, he finds out that they owe a debt to the Gibeonites. That Saul had done wrong. And uh, sometimes with sin, God doesn't always deal with us right away. Sometimes it takes some time. But when he does deal with us, we should certainly ask God, Lord, have I sinned? Show me my iniquity. Let me ask, seek forgiveness and repent of it. Uh, don't expect just because God doesn't see a sin that he doesn't care. Or, uh, sorry, that, that, uh, because God doesn't judge you for a sin that he doesn't care. God sees all sin, and, and uh, he absolutely cares. And thankfully, we have the grace of God. We might not endure famines in this way, but we should consider if we're under the Lord's discipline as a believer for some sort of sinful uh, attitude or action. And so David inquires of the Lord. He finds out about this. So he goes to the Gibeonites, and he says, what can I do? The Gibeonites, verse 4, say, uh, we will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, and as, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of the Israel, let seven men of the descendants be delivered to us, 
and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth is the crippled son of Jonathan, if you remember. Uh, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath, and the, uh, that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armani and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, and daughter of um, Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michelle, the daughter of Saul. Now, if you remember Michelle, she uh, laughed at David and um, kind of demeaned him for dancing before the Lord when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back into Israel. And we saw that from that point on, basically David had no children with her. It seemed like David just said, I'm not going in with you. And so she had these other sons from the other husband and uh, that Saul had given her to while David was on the run. So he took those sons. Um, uh, the son, uh, Adriel, the son of Barzillai, uh, the Mehalathite, and he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days in the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it uh, for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the late rains poured on them from the heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beast of the field by night. And David was told uh, what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up, after the Philistines had struck down Saul and Gilboa. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded, and after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. And so uh, David heard about Rizpah creating this memorial on the rock, and then he went and gathered up all the bones, the bones of these men who had been hung, the bones of David and, or Jonathan and Saul, took them back to Kish, to the Kish's tomb, that's Saul's father's tomb, uh, gave a public burial took care of all their bones, and then God heeded the prayer for the land. Now, a part of you might be thinking like, well, is this fair? Is it, seven sons, seven descendants who weren't even a part of it, they're now like just all of a sudden grab from their lives what they're doing and say, sorry, buddy, your dad murdered a bunch of people. You're going to go hang, right? I, I don't know about you, but I question that. And I don't have an answer for you about fair. But what I do know is when Abraham was concerned with, uh, about God's judgment for the cities of the plain. Abraham asked a question of God. Will not the God of all the earth, the judge of all the earth, do what is right? And the answer is yes. God will always do what is right and what is just. So we may not always understand, especially some of these Old Testament stories, how God worked. Uh, we don't understand uh, all, all the dealings of all of this, but we just have to trust that God is a just God and always does what is right. Certainly, we have plenty of God's character through the rest of the scriptures. And, uh, and in this way, you know, there's a lot of speculation. We could say that, well, in this way, God was also taking care of uh, this threat against David's kingdom. I don't know so much about that. But uh, 
we, we just don't know. All we can do is trust the character of God and know that whatever Saul did, uh, as far as his sin go, it had a great effect on his children, uh, his descendants. And, and we should always be cautious about playing around with sin or taking sin lightly. All right, we're going to finish up this chapter with a kind of a uh, little bit of a fun story. Uh, well, it's fun and sad. Verse 15. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines. And David grew faint. Then Ishbi Benob, that's a fun name, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with, uh, with us into battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. And so we don't know how old David is at this point. Some suggest he's up in his seven, he's 70, some say 60, 50. I, I, he's probably up in his uh, 60s at this point in time. But uh, it could be 70 even. Uh, but here, what we do know is he, he's ready to go out to battle. Now, before when the kings went out to battle, he didn't go and he got himself in trouble. Now he's like, okay, uh, we got some Philistines to conquer. Philistines are rising back up. We're going to go take care of them. And, uh, and he deals with this giant, uh, this Philistine giant, Ishbi Banab. And as he's fighting Ishbi Banab, he just doesn't have the stamina or the strength to fight Ishbi Banab anymore. He, he almost succumbs to Ishbi Banab. And Abishai steps in and slays the giant. And then they kind of make a rule. They say, you're not going out to battle anymore. And uh, there's a time when, uh, when we have to surrender some of the things of our youth and hand them over and some, some of the zeal that we might have for things and recognize that God is moving us on into new territory. And, uh, and, he, and he'll raise up others to take care of that. And so it says... Um, you shall, go, shall not go out anymore with, to the battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. And that's what Israel was. That's what David was. He was a lamp he, he, uh, to all of Israel, the king, the great psalmist of Israel. So now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gosh, Gob. Then uh, Sibekai, the Hushathite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Again, there was a war at Gob with the Philistines where Elihanan, the son of Jerorgan, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was a war at Gath where there was a man of, of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, killed him. Now, I can't help but think of Inigo Montoya going around and asking people, do you happen to have six fingers on your left hand, right? Uh, these guys were insane, these giants. But I, what I love is the Lord's servants, these mighty men of David. They're not afraid of it. Do you remember when Joshua sent out the spies and they came back and said, there's giants in the lands, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. 
we can't tackle this. And now you read just this little, hey, we're just going to give this little note at the end of chapter 21. Uh, These guys just took on these giants on their own. They slayed them. Done. No big deal. And I I just want to point out this. We shouldn't be scared of giants. We shouldn't be scared of those things that, that appear big or dangerous or whatever the case is. We should trust in the Lord our God. That's what we should focus on. We walk by faith, not by sight. So a lot of things in life that rear its head want to cause you to focus on that, put fear on that, but not for the believer. The believer just trusts in the Lord, moves forward in faith, and is not, is not uh, moved so much by fear, but is moved by the Holy Spirit of God. And so these men just slay these giants. Uh, verse 22 These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Uh, And so we see the end of the episode of these giants. Uh, Of course, uh, David's whole career started with slaying the giant Goliath who had these other brothers. And uh, and it's just wonderful how God just uh, puts this little note in here about these other men of faith. We don't get a big story about them. We just got like, okay, this needs to be done, so I'm going to go slay a giant. Um, maybe there's some giants that you've got to slay. Uh, maybe there's some addictions in your life that needs to be taken care of, and you just haven't slayed it. I think those are things you need to consider, especially when we read stories like this and know that God can call you to be a mighty man just as much as these men. And of course, we don't fight with the weapons of this world anymore. Uh, we fight with uh, spiritual weapons. We take captive every thought and principle that sets itself up against the truth and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, and there is certainly a lot to be battled with today, but uh, we don't battle in the same way. And I would encourage you to get brothers to pray for you, get brothers to pray over your giants, go to war with you, stand with you. Uh, Don't go by yourself and let God help you uh, have victory over these things. Well, that's the end of 2 Samuel 21. We're almost closing to the end of 2 Samuel. And uh, all in all, these two chapters together are about victory. We've seen David on the run for a long time. But more than anything, we see God giving David victory. We see God reconciling those sins, those things that have been done wrong. And and, uh, bringing Israel into a healthy place once again. So with that said, let's go ahead and pray. And we're done for the night. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. For this time in your word, and Lord, right now I just bring to you, and if you are in this room and there's a giant, there's something that is standing and blocking your vision, either a sin or an obstacle or a hurt, whatever that giant might be, I just want you to to bring that before the Lord. Lord, forgive us when we don't have faith to see past that giant when our sight is just obscured by evildoers and evil things. Lord, we want to be faithful men, faithful women, faithful to the call, to the kingdom that you've made us a part of. So now, Lord, we ask for you to remove those giants in our lives. Help us to have the faith to deal with, endure, bear with, and have victory over. Lord, we know that these battles that these men fought are, although shortly spoken about, must have been quite an ordeal. But Lord, you delivered the enemies into your servants' hands. 
And we thank you for that. We thank you for your faithfulness. And we pray your blessing on these people. In Jesus' name, amen. David, when he was on the run from Saul and acting mad before Abimelech, wrote this in Psalm 34. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Praise God for the Lord and how close he is to us when we need him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he protect you and give you peace. Amen.